remember the instincts are something that we're, we're supposed to be using all of them. So there are going to be pieces of these instincts where you can see, oh, yep, that's part of my life. Yep, that's part of my life. Um, but I want to encourage you to remember, like, all three of them are built into our own biology. The question is not, am I using this instinct at all? The question is, where's my focus? Mm. Where am I over-focusing and where am I under-focusing? Which of these instincts is getting too much of my energy and which one of them is getting too little of my energy? Hey guys, welcome back to Not My Type. This is Malia. And this is Jack here. And we're so excited for you to join us. Um, we're just two twos on the Enneagram trying to convey some more Enneagram information out there. Hopefully that information can turn into wisdom. So yeah. we're going to talk today about the issue of instincts. Um, instincts are a really nuanced conversation in Enneagram language that describes the way each neurosis is colored. So picture these three instincts. They're all supposed to be consumed in a way. We're, we're supposed to use them all daily. Um, the problem is the nature of personality is imbalanced. So let's break down what those instincts are and what they look like. So, yeah, so all three of them are necessary for survival. Um, the most basic one is called the self-preservation instinct. And the second one is called the social instinct. And the sexual instinct is the third one. So in general, the self-preservation instinct is what keeps us alive in our physical bodies. Mm. The social instinct is what connects us to other individuals and gives us a community and a family. Um, and the sexual instinct is what drives us to connect and merge with others to functionally procreate. I mean, we all mm. have this drive to have a mate in some way or another. I like to think of the example of the wolves being dropped into the wilderness and what's their first instinct is, is it to find food and shelter? which it would be the self-preservation. Would it be find a herd and a tribe? That would be the social. Or is it to, like, find a mate? And those are the instincts kind of wrapped up in the animalistic examples. Yeah, that's a general example. I think everyone should know that we already recorded some episodes mm. on the instincts. We did this a couple weeks ago, and I have since done some more research on the instincts because I felt like some of the definitions we had of them Kind of vague. We're very vague. Yeah. And I shared some of that with Malia, and we realized there's basically no way we could publish those episodes in Good full conscience. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, we couldn't do that confidently because I really felt like a lot of this vague information that you hear in Enneagram language about the sexual, social, or self-present instincts, like, people are trying their best to describe them, but I feel like they're really watered down and they're not very accurate. So our hope was to try and express the needs of all three of the instincts in a more nuanced and distinct way than you've probably heard it before because we are still learning. I mm. mean, Malia kind of labeled herself, um, the novice, the novice and <laughs> me as true. the expert, but even, even I, you know what I'm saying? Like I, there's still so much that I have to learn and that mm. I am learning. Um, but yeah, this instincts conversation, I think we needed to do again. So here we are recording it. Uh, again, we're going to try our best to, to share some of this information. So I'm going to let everyone know first, these instincts, self-preservation, sexual, social, um, you can find a lot of really confusing information on this. What we're going to be talking about today is mostly about um, David Gray's perspective on the mm. instincts. He is an Enneagram expert who is much older than I am and much wiser than I am and has studied the Enneagram a lot longer. Um, his website is called Enneagrammer. Just take the Enneagram and add M-E-R to the end of that. Enneagrammer.com, and he has really thorough discussions of the instincts, so I encourage everyone to go look at that if you want more information. But we're going to kind of summarize that information for you today. But remember, these are all about animal survival, so it's very basic. It's very biological. People want to make it into something that you can fit onto an Instagram post about subtypes quickly um, mm. because basically what goes, what goes on is when you pair these instincts with the neuroses, with the Enneagram types, you're going to get very nuanced and unique manifestations of neurosis. Mm. So basically, there's an idea that we all have a dominant instinct. So there's one instinct that we over-focus on that we think is more important for our survival than it actually is. Yeah. And that instinct is is filtered through our neurosis. So mm -hmm. you can you could be a nine that is socially dominant. You could be a nine that's self-pres dominant, or you could be a nine that's sexually dominant. Would you say that the one that you're dominant in 
is similar to when you're dominant in your neurosis type where you don't see it. Like it, it kind of exists unnoticed in the same way that your neurosis exists unnoticed. Exactly. I think the dominant instinct is so natural to us. We don't realize that it's a focus. We yeah. don't realize that it is so important to us. Because I think what was really interesting to me when I started learning about the instincts was that other people didn't think like I did. Like those first thoughts that you have about when you enter a room, like for me with a self-pres dominant instinct, my first thought when I enter a room is, you know, are these people safe? Is there food? Like, is this a place that is a shelter? Whereas other people don't think like that. And that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's very important to learn your dominant instinct. And it's also really important to learn your repressed instinct. So basically mm -hmm. what this means is that there's one instinct we over-focus on. But picture three glasses of different liquids that are half full. You need to drink all three of them every day. Um, but because there's one that we over-focus on, we have to get that liquid somewhere. So mm. you take it from one of the other instincts, basically. Take one of those glasses that are half full and you pour all of that liquid into another one that is your dominant instinct. So because of that, there's one that remains unchanged and that's called the secondary instinct. That's in the middle. The one that you overfilled that is now really full is the dominant instinct. That's what you're giving way too much attention to. And the repressed instinct is forgotten. That's really important to realize, is that the repressed instinct isn't something that you're intentionally repressing. So the dominant instinct, we overfocus on. And then we have the secondary instinct that remains unchanged, that we use in balance, and that we have the least amount of problems with because mm. we're drinking the right amount every day. Right. Um, and then the repressed instinct is the one that we forget or ignore. We presume it isn't as important for survival as it actually is. Mm, yeah. So there's one that we're overfocusing on, one that we see appropriately and one that we underfocus on. And because of this imbalance, you're getting very nuanced manifestations of type. And that's where the subtypes come from. If you hear that, that's what that phrase means. It's because when you break down each neurosis and then give them all versions within the different instincts, then it creates, you know, a nine who is self-pressed dominant and nine that's sexual dominant and nine that is social dominant, which as we'll see later, as we'll talk about later, can make a really big difference. Yeah, and we're going to later dive into the issue of stacking, which is this assessment of which instinct is dominant, which one is secondary, and which one's repressed. Um, so among each dominant instinct, um, there are two options for which one is repressed. See what I'm saying? Mm, so you, yeah. could, you could be social dominant and then have self-pres as second and repressed sexual, or you could be social dominant and then have sexual as second and then repress self-press. Mm -hmm. So this makes a whole lot of different nuanced versions of each type, which is why, why I think this is a really important topic to discuss. Um, and I wanna remind everyone, remember the instincts are something that we're, we're supposed to be using all of them. So there are gonna be pieces of these instincts where you can see, oh, yep, that's part of my life. Yep, that's part of my life. Um, but I wanna encourage you to remember like all three of them are built into our own biology. The question is not, am I using this instinct at all? The question is, where's my focus? Mm. Where am I over focusing and where am I under focusing? Which of these instincts is getting too much of my energy and which one of them is getting too little of my energy? There's something to acknowledge about the repressed instinct is that because it's forgotten and because we're, we're clumsy with using it, clumsy with our own ability to stay alive that way, mm -hmm. um, we often try and outsource meeting the needs to uh, the other two instincts that aren't repressed. So for example, I repress the self-pres instinct. What that means is I'm trying to get all my self-pres needs met through a sexual or social lens and recognize like that's not sufficient. Like that's not mm -hmm. actually gonna work the way it should work. That's just what my body intuitively is trying to do. So now that we've discussed kind of the overview of the instincts, let's go into the, what they are and what that looks like. Yeah, so I think we should start with self-preservation because it's the most basic instinct. It's the most simple um, and necessary to survival. Right, and you were saying that it's probably most common to I be think, dominant. Absolutely, I think it's the most common because it's the instinct that helps us carry our bodies through reality. It helps us carry on in life. Um, the self-preservation instinct is about self-protection. It's about keeping our bodies mm -hmm. healthy, well, um, and making sure we have the resources we need and the skills we need to stay alive no matter what the circumstances might be. Mm -hmm. So the self-pres instinct has an awareness of what is at risk and what's not. What might be taken, what might not be. What do I have, what do I not have? So no matter what type you might be, no matter what your dominant neurosis might be, if self-pres is your dominant instinct, it's going to manifest in a more physical way, in a more material way. Mm. 
than if it's, if you were social or sexual dominant. The self-preservation instinct is often concerned with one's physical health. So there's a focus on, do I have the food that I need? Do I have the water that I need? Am I feeling good? Am I not feeling good? It's more than just a focus on one's physical experience. It's more than just sensory input. There's a hyper-focus on this sense of, am I actually secure? Am I safe? Do I have what I need? Yeah, and personally, the self-pres instinct is dominant in me, and I've noticed that um, the focus kind of exhibits in me structuring my life around self-preservation. So, for instance, my roommate will always ask me, you know, oh, what do you have going on tomorrow? And I literally can't name a single thing. But I know when I'm going to eat, what I want to eat, like where I'm going to go in order to get those things. Um, I know all those things, but I don't understand, you know, maybe like what's what, what responsibilities I have that day. It's hard for me to think, but I'm already planning my entire day and structuring it around those self-pres instinct needs. I think one should acknowledge that there's, because of this attunement to health, sometimes that can manifest as like overeating it can manifest as undereating. It can manifest as an obsession with exercise. That's a that's a really big part of it. And remember, not every single one of these details is going to apply to your life every single time. Yeah, I want to also talk on that because I was talking to my best friend about this and she was saying, you know, well, Malia, you don't always seem super structured. <laughs> and like, that's very true. Like, people would look at me and not assume that I have these structures in my mind. But in reality, not all self-prez dominant people are going to be able to follow through on those self-pres needs but that doesn't mean they're not thinking about them because that's altered by type as well remember yeah. that like one's dominant neurosis is going to change the way this instinct manifests it's more so a concern it's like what are you concerned about because of the concern with health and the concern with resources there's this attunement to one's scheduling the self-pres instinct doesn't mean that you're suddenly a planner or that your life is suddenly perfectly organized what it means is the self-pres instinct requires some degree of focus on planning out your necessary rituals and practices to make sure that you're taking care of your body. So one of my roommates is basically one of the most fit people I've ever encountered. He loves working out. He's really good at it. And he's self-pressed dominant. And yet he's a seven. So, so much of his life is completely disorganized. Mm. He's very chaotic. He's all over the place. He was just telling me today, he doesn't feel very productive in life. Um, but being self-pressed dominant, there's this consistent structure because his instinctual focus is on how do I keep myself alive? How do I keep myself healthy? So he's mm. always, I always hear him saying, oh, I have to eat. Oh, I'm so hungry. <laughs> oh, I, I'm so exhausted. You know, right, like the, right. I'm so tired. It doesn't mean that no one else can experience these things. It doesn't mean you have to be self-pressed dominant to experience hunger or experience being tired. Yeah. What it means is that there's this focus on it constantly throughout your day. It's going to be this undercurrent in everything. And it might be so prevalent, you don't even see it. You know, yeah. it, it might be so consistent that you're not even noticing the way it, it manifests well even between us like you are not self-pres dominant and so you don't think about that and that was like mind-blowing to me it's like how are you not thinking about oh i need to eat right now like i'm so hungry yeah and i think because self-pres is repressed for me i can go a long time without eating or without sleeping or without doing anything i need to do to take care of my body and i won't realize that Mm. I'm deficient in those areas, you know? Yeah. It'll take me a long while until it's really extreme, and I'm like, oh, I'm actually super hungry. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, I've realized that's a big trend for me, is that because it's a blind spot for me, and remember, that's what the repressed instinct is. The repressed instinct is a blind spot. We're, mm. we're blind to the necessity of those needs. And because my blind spot is self-pres, I don't notice how necessary taking care of my body often is. I also want to go back to what you said about resources and skills to be able to survive because a part of the self-pres instinct, especially in our modern world where money is how you get all of these things, could be an over-focus on working in order to get money and looking for jobs, like an over-focus on how do I get the resources I need in order to survive. Yeah, that's so true. I think this focus on money is really big um, because remember, since the self-pres instinct is about physical things, about your physical body, you need physical resources. And like Malia said, you need money to get those resources. Um, but remember, this can manifest differently too. You know, like I know people that are sevens that are dominant in self-pres that love to spend money, but also love to earn money. You know, there's this yeah. focus on it, on the, the giving and taking of resources. Um, but my dad, who's a six, who's very concerned about safety um, and security and is self-pres dominant, he's very, very frugal. That doesn't mean that every six who's self-pres dominant is going to be frugal, but most of the time they are. 
And you've talked about self-pres threes who are very concerned about gathering things, you know. Yeah, there's a lot. I remember the three still wants attention, wants recognition. So they're gathering resources as a way of getting other people's attention. Right. That look at all these wonderful, beautiful things that I have. Look at this home that I've created for myself. Look at um, the clothes that I have. There's this manifestation physically mm. of the material world that allows that self-pressed three to get attention through the material world. But remember, this is instinctual. So the three won't recognize that this is what's going on. No one really notices what's going on instinctually unless you're looking for it. David Gray's website talks about this issue of survival skills. Um, and we were reading it together the other day. And one of his prompts was this idea that the self-pressed instinct has going on in the back of its head that says, um, could I survive if I were dropped in a forest? And you were like, yeah. yes, I think yeah. that all the time. And I realized I don't ever think that. I just presume the answer is no. You know, it's mm. like, could I survive in a forest? Uh, no. So I don't, I'm not going to think about that. You know, it's like, <laughs> right. This, because that's my blind spot, I undervalue the importance of making sure I have the skills to survive in a forest. Like I was thinking about this the other day. If my tire popped, do I know how to change a tire? Yeah, I've watched a thousand videos before because you have to learn it in class, whatever. You, I learned it from my dad. Like I've seen it done. I know how to do it, but because I've never physically done it, there's this idea of like, that's a skill I don't have. And mm. it's not, it's not important to me to do. You know what I'm saying? It should be important to me to do, but it's sort of like, oh, I'll get that self-pres need met through social and sexual. Mm, you know, yeah. there's this outsourcing of the needs of the blind spot. But the self-pres instinct should be concerned with those physical skills of, do I have what I need to keep on going throughout my day? I think it's important to realize that like, no one could possibly focus on every single aspect of the instinct. So yeah. a lot of times the personality just says, oh, this is something I'm going to cling to because this is what I think self-preservation looks like. You know, mm. like there might be a, someone who's self-pres dominant who thinks taking care of the body has to do with food specifically. But there's someone else who might think taking care of the body has to do with money. Someone else who thinks yeah. taking care of the body has to do with my level of comfortable temperature. Mm. Or someone who might think, oh, I need to have the right skills to take care of my body. Right. Another thing about the self-pres instinct I think we need to acknowledge is that there's this focus on the value of things. Because of this focus on money and resources, sometimes self-pres dominant people are quite aware of the value of things, concerned with, oh, would this get me more money? Would this get me less money? Um, mm. Is this worth more than this? You know, there's this concern with the actual physical value of things in the world and understanding how to trade them, how to market them. Um, David Gray would argue that there's a focus on business because of this. I don't think that's true for everyone, but I think a lot of times there's a, this awareness of the value of things because of the need for resources and the way it goes back to money. Would you say that the self-pres instinct is selfish? I think it can sound selfish. I think it is more self-concerned than social or sexual, mm. um, but that's not necessarily the case because remember all three of these instincts are providing needs for us. You know, mm. The self-pres instinct is just most evidently direct, directed toward the self. So it... I think people who are self-pres dominant might be more likely to be self-concerned than social or sexual, but that doesn't mean that you're necessarily a, a selfish person. Mm, right, right, you're right, right, dominant. right, right. But I see a, a tendency to form boundaries that the other instincts don't have. That's really true. The self-pres instinct, because it wants to protect what it has and what it needs, it is the most boundaried of these instincts. It sets, it sets protective boundaries for the self to make sure that I have what I physically need. And I think that's what can make it look kind of selfish because it says, I have this thing, I don't want you to take it, so I'm gonna set these boundaries and focus on myself. I think that's why as a two, I can say no more than other twos in some ways mm, because so of true. my self-preservation instinct. I look at how it affects my needs, maybe before it affects my social needs mm. or definitely before it affects my sexual needs. And so yeah. I say, I can say no, I can set this boundary because my brain is coming up with reasons why it could affect and harm myself. And why it could harm your body even. You know, yeah. like there's this sense yeah. of like the self-preservation instinct is trying to create boundaries to protect the body right. and its resources and its needs. So moving on from the self-preservation instinct, let's talk about the next one, which is social. The social instinct is widely misunderstood i think in enneagram we under misunderstood it yeah i mean it was widely misunderstood for us um yeah a week ago <laughs> um but it's it's often talked about as the group instinct it is oriented toward groups and i would argue it's more oriented toward groups than the other two instincts yeah however it is not just about groups it's fundamentally about the drive to form connections um there's this sense of a familial warmth there's this sense of friendship there's this sense of um generally being aware of other people's feelings about you, um, about each other, 
your feelings about other people. So it and doesn't, how you relate to other people. Exactly. It doesn't mean that you're suddenly a touchy-feely person or whatever. Right. The social instinct is, is the focus for survival that relates to one's connections. Like I was saying before, David Gray's really great content talks about the idea that there's when you hear a baby crying, that internal response to move toward um, and to care for the baby um, is that social instinct that says, oh, I, there's a family. There's someone outside of me that I am inherently tied to, and I should take care of them. Um, so this is the instinct that drives us to care for others, but also to be cared for by others. Mm. Because remember, that baby has that social instinct, too. The baby is crying because they have a social instinct. You know, that, like the baby is saying, hey, I, I'm reaching out in a way, you know. Yeah, yeah. Come help me. Um, so the social instinct is, is what drives us to make friends, to connect with other people. Um, but that doesn't mean that you're a social person. I think it's important to say that you could be social dominant and be super introverted. You could be social dominant and be one of those people who's like, I hate people, blah, blah, blah. I'm in my own <laughs> lane, which is my own bias coming out because I think that's just the most unattractive aesthetic. But um, there's this sense of concern with inclusion and exclusion. You know, who is in my bubble? Who are my people and who aren't my people? Mm. Um, and this instinct is the focus on who are my people and who aren't my people. So when this instinct is dominant, there's this hyper-concern with other people's expectations for me and the laws and systems and structures and boundaries that exist between us that allow us to connect. Yeah, whereas the self-pres has a lot of boundaries between them and others, the social recognizes boundaries between everyone and each other. Yeah, it's not about my own boundaries. It's about the boundaries that exist between us yeah. that allow us to connect. Socially acceptable boundaries. Yeah, and so this focus doesn't mean that you're necessarily following all those boundaries. Right. What it means is that there's there's a, an attention given to mm -hmm. these boundaries. So I want to say, just as a disclaimer, I thought I was socially repressed for a long time because I have a tendency to say or do things that um, disrupt other people uh, that disrupt is a good word. <laughs> make other people uncomfortable. I don't think that's always the right course of action. Um, but I, I guess I thought that meant I was socially repressed. What I've realized is that that is simply not the case. Mm. Um, you can think about the social instinct as something that is asking, what are other people doing? Um, if everyone else in the room is sitting down, should I be sitting down? If everyone else is clapping, should I be clapping? You know, it's also this consideration of how does this person feel? Is this person upset with me? Is this person not upset with me? Um, Should they... I form a line? You know, like even that idea. Yeah, there, there are these structures that say, um, here's how we should be behaving. But depending on your neurotic cycle that's dominant, or even that's not dominant, just d depending on neurosis, one can choose whether or not to obey those rules. Mm. Anyone can choose to do that. You mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? When social is the blind spot, you're not considering these boundaries. You're not considering these structures and you're not considering the way your choices affect connection. So when social is the blind spot, you might get people who are socially awkward or just doing things that are strange, um, doing things that are odd or seem antisocial. But recognize if you're doing weird things that are antisocial behavior, and by that I don't mean like being introverted and being in your corner. What I, what I mean is like antisocial, meaning opposing these structures and these boundaries. Um, the question is wh where are you aware of it? That's really what, yeah. what matters. Um, if you step into a room full of people, what is your thought? Is it, what do they expect of me? Or is it, like, completely not even thinking about that? Yeah, I think that's so true. Like, I have a friend that I was thinking about today who is definitely social blind. And he just does his own thing all the time. But people love him. You know what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't mean he's inherently awkward. Mm. He's handsome. He's smart. He's driven. He's educated. All these things. Like, people like him. But he doesn't seem concerned about the expectations that others have for him because it's just not on his mind. It's not an instinctual focus. And I've realized for me, it often is an instinctual focus. What do other people think about this? What do other people feel about this? Mm. How will this choice I make make others feel? It's just I have often made pro-social choices and I've also made anti-social choices. But and you knew but you knew that they were going to be pro or anti-social when you made them. Exactly. There, there's an awareness of it. And of course, I don't always guess that right. Um, because social is my middle instinct. It's the secondary instinct for me. Yeah. So it's not dominant in me, but it is something I'm frequently concerned with and aware of is mm -hmm. how is this going to land? How is this going to alter other people's perspectives? This is the same instinct that allows us to not only observe how will this behavior um, affect things, it's also the instinct that makes us wonder someone else made this choice. 
why did they make that choice? What was their intent? It, it's the instinct that drives us to perceive other people's intentions. So there's this sense of like mind reading that you get with people who are um, socially dominant. It doesn't mean that they're magical or whatever. It just means that they're very concerned about what was this person meaning by this? Why didn't they text me back? Why didn't they call me back? You know, mm. why did I get a delayed response here? Um, I think a lot of times this focus on intent and motivation can guess things wrong. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily getting it right. A lot of times you might be overthinking things and yeah. incorrectly assessing someone else's intent or motivation. But regardless, there is a focus when this instinct is dominant or secondary on hmm, what is going on here? Why did, it, why did they do this? Yeah. The social instinct is that instinct that makes us aware of who we're accepting into our herd, who we're saying, yes, you are welcomed into my bubble. No, you're not welcome in my bubble. Um, you think about a five that might be socially dominant. And a five is still very stingy with the self. A five is still quite reserved. If they're social dominant, they're not going to suddenly be like, everyone is welcome in my herd or everyone mm, is welcome yeah. in my bubble. But then I think about a two that we know who is social dominant. And she's just about the most social person in the world because you're combining that warm, friendly, image-focused neurosis with this instinct that's concerned with who's welcome in our bubble and she just trusts everyone. She is excited about everyone. She welcomes everyone. Um, and because of that, you can see this dichotomy. Like this instinct has the power to say yes or say no to those who enter the herd or mm. those who enter in, into connection with you. Uh, so there's this awareness of who the social instinct when it's not repressed. There's an awareness of who am I going to connect with and who am I definitely not going to connect with. Yeah. And remember, because this is instinctual, because this is animal, it goes back to this internal concern with, like, who might be a threat to my community? Yeah, that's big. You know, like, these instincts, they're about protecting our existence and our survival. So the social instinct is what helps us make sure that we're not welcoming unhealthy or or destructive people into our communities. Um, so that it's effective in that sense when you're willing and able to set boundaries or obey boundaries, social boundaries, that exclude the threats. But when it's magnified into something really unhealthy and ridiculous, it's going to look like all sorts of prejudice because it's basically swelling this sense of us versus them. Mm. That's really important to realize. Like so much of the way we think of ourselves is a manifestation of the systems and groups and, and social structures that we've grown up in. So the social instinct is what's concerned with who's, who's in the in group and who's in the out group and how do I make sure that we keep the out group out and how do we make sure that we keep the in group in mm. Um, so you can get people who are social dominant that are really good at leading groups who are keeping people in. Um, or you can get someone who's a really diligent follower that's saying, this is the expectation of me by this group or system or to this friend, to this connection, to my family member, to my family as a system, whatever it might be. There's this sense of the higher social is, the more aware this person is going to be of the demands that are placed on them by connection. And remember that this is still a survival instinct. And so the social instinct is saying, in order for me to survive, I need to be in a group. Exactly. And in order for my group to survive, the bad people need to be out. Yeah, that's so big. That is so big. So let's talk about the sexual instinct. Yeah, yeah. This is a really important conversation to have. I think, I think this is probably the instinct that is most poorly and incorrectly perceived by the public as far as... Enneagram community and culture and the way people talk about it. And I think it was the one that we were actually confused on the most Yeah, as well. for sure. I mean, my, my understanding of the sexual instinct has only just recently evolved and upgraded um, yeah. to something more biologically informed. But this instinct is people don't like the word sex. That's a big thing. People don't like the word sex, um, and especially not in the Christian community, which can run a lot of Enneagram conversation. Mm -hmm. And this is often renamed as the one-to-one -one instinct because people don't like saying sexual. Um, and I hate to break it to you, but you can't do that because this instinct is not explicitly limited to one-on-one -on -one interactions. It doesn't mean you just want to connect with people um, in a really deep way. Like, of course, everyone wants intimacy. That's an issue of social, you know? The social mm -hmm. instinct is what makes us want to have intimacy with other people in a warm, fuzzy, relational way. Yeah, I mean, we just got that confused, I think, because the sexual instinct can be one-on-one -on -one, and it often is, but so is the social. Yeah. Social can be so one-on-one -on -one for sure. It's just social is very warm and fuzzy and sexual is not. Yeah. 
So like, think about, I mean, think about the nature of sex. It's about chemistry. It's about, um, the literal bonding and fusing of partners of, um, sexual beings. So like the focus of the sexual instinct, because remember this is, again, these are animal instincts. These are about mm. keeping us alive. The sexual instinct is about finding a mate and it's not about sex explicitly. It, it's, it might relate to that sometimes, but it's about the attraction strategies we use to find a mate. The sexual instinct is what prompts a peacock to flare his feathers to try and get the attention of a mate. But let's clarify that because it's not just used to find a mate. Like the sexual instinct doesn't just come out when you are attracted to someone romantically. That's true. And, and I think people get confused about that. The sexual instinct isn't limited to people who are romantically involved or not romantically involved. It's the sexual instinct is about the attraction strategies we use to bring others toward us and to necessitate intimacy um, and vulnerability. I think an important thing to talk about um, is that the social instinct wants to connect under the structure, under the roof of social expectations, of social boundaries, of this is what's expected, this is how we engage. Um, but the sexual instinct does not play by the rules, and that's important to realize. That doesn't mean if you are sexual dominant, you don't like acknowledge rules. Um, what it means is the sexual instinct is about removing boundaries that prevent you from getting to your target, basically, mm -hmm. or prevent your your hunter from getting to you. And and that's an important metaphor to use here, is that this hunter and prey mentality is essential to the sexual instinct. When the sexual instinct is dominant, there's an awareness. Um, that an individual has of either hunting someone or being hunted, that there's someone that's my focus that I want to catch. Um, and I also want to be caught mm. because remember, if this goes back to a literal sexual instinct, we want to attract people. We want people to be drawn to us. And this isn't the same as a social, like I want to be respected and like liked. Um, no, it deals with having a target. And, and because of that, it manifests in a really obsessive way. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like, I guess, more so than just wanting to be friends with someone? Because it's not just like, I want to be around this person. Can you talk about more about what a fusing looks like? Yeah, of course. And, and recognize, remember to everyone who's listening that we have our own bias because we are both twos. I think that's mm. important to acknowledge. Um, but I'm dominant in the sexual instinct and Malia represses the sexual instinct. So my my brain and my body overemphasizes the importance of the sexual instinct in survival. And so for me, I don't just want to be friends with someone. And there's typically one person at a time in a period of my life that gets all of my attention and thought, where mm. it's my focus instinctually becomes getting as close as possible to this person. Um, and it's typically has nothing to do with like wanting to have sex with this person. Um, but it is about fusing with this person. There's the sense of I want to feel attractive or I want to feel interesting to someone. I want to be wanted by someone. And I think that's why it can get confusing because that, that might go back to some two-ishness in me. But the sexual instinct is inherently about, um, it, it does relate to seducing someone in a way, mm. saying, I am worthy of your attention and thus you should give it to me. And at the same time saying, you are worthy of my attention, will you give me yourself? So the sexual instinct is not just about like living life with one another, but this fusing can also look like just a merging of lives and merging of people of a desire to merge, um, of a give and take. And there's a phrase that we've been talking about that I think is really key to this idea, which is called psychological nudity. Yeah. And that's, again, this goes back to what David Gray has written about. Um, there's this sense that because the sexual instinct wants to be completely fused with um, whoever they're trying to attract. Um, there's this expectation that's set that I will bear myself and you will bear yourself. And that, I mean, think about even the, the point of sex, like sex necessitates some form of nudity. And so the sexual instinct, when it's dominant, there's this like flowiness because remember there's like the sexual instinct is both masculine and feminine because there's this masculine part of us that wants to attract and dominate. Like everyone has a masculine aspect in their personality, but there's also a feminine part of the personality that wants to attract and, and be dominated, be taken in a way, you know, like the feminine aspect of the sexual instinct is what wants to be changed. 
and the masculine aspect is what wants to change. So in order to fuse, there is this necessary giving and taking that comes with the sexual instinct that it wants to give, but it also wants to be taken. Um, Ada Limon is this poet that I love, and there's this one line in one of her poems where she says, I want to give something or I want to take something. Either way, I want to feel the exchange. And that's the mm. point of the sexual instinct is that it wants to give the self. Um, so there's this like stripping away of my own boundaries when the sexual instinct is dominant. There's this bearing of self, but I also want you to bear yourself. Remember, the sexual instinct is about this fusing of two parties. And because of that, there is always going to be this masculine part of us that wants to change the other and the feminine part of us that wants to be changed by the other. Mm. And so um, for some people, you'll see in the sexual instinct when it's dominant, uh, this nature of androgyny, what, like, regardless of whether you're a literal male or female, that doesn't matter. There's this sense of feminine and masculine presentation of this willingness to be flowy and affected and also to be shovey and affect. Hmm. And if you think about the idea of sex, it's not just you being nude, but it's both of you. Like it requires a, a nudity on both parties. And that's the expectation of the sexual instinct is that mm. I'm going to be psychologically nude and I expect you to bear yourself as well. And so the higher the sexual instinct is in someone stacking, the more there is this pressure to seek vulnerability. They're pressuring. Well, I think that's easy for you to say because you're sexual last. I know, um, but I'm asking you. I was like, is it a pressure from them? I think there is some f sort of expectation given from people who are sexual dominant, but also consider that like a nine who's sexual dominant is not nearly going to be nearly as shovey as mm. an eight who's sexual mm -hmm. dominant. You know what I'm saying? Or like personality mixes with the instinct, so it changes things. Um, but the sexual instinct in general is going to include both aspects of stripping oneself but also stripping the other. Mm -hmm. and the expectation that you should remove boundaries so that we can be fused. And I think it's important, like this, again, this can literally have to do with sex or finding a romantic partner, but it's not always that way. I mean, for me, as a sexual dominant individual, like I recognize the sexual instinct showing up in my friendships even, that I have friends who are not as focused on being totally fused with me. I even had a conversation with with a friend the other day where like, we were doing laundry together and I was doing his laundry. Um, and this is someone I'm really close to, but I, <laughs> um, I had thrown our, a couple of our things in, in the wash. Um, and it went through and it was in the dryer and he was like, Oh, is, is our stuff in the dryer? And I was like, yeah, it is. And I come into the room later and he has pulled out his things, um, but left mine in the dryer. Mm -hmm. And that's not just like a, I'm not offended. I don't really mind, but I noticed that there, there's this instinct in me for everything to be done together. That, right. like, I want us to be fused completely. That, like, even mm -hmm. our laundry is done together, you know? That when we make food, we, we serve each other at the same time. We eat the same food. We, we wear the same clothes. You know, there's this expectation of fusing with whoever the target is. And so for me, a lot of times that might be a friend. But also, like, I remember when I was pursuing my girlfriend and wanted to date her, um, as I was trying to get to know her better, she was the only thing I thought about. And mm -hmm. getting close to her and sharing life with her and being similar to her and yet also like affecting her and being affected by her was all I could think about, you mm -hmm. know? So there is this form of wanting to um, merge, but it's not about the warm, fuzzy, intimate social connection. Mm, it's right. about the chemistry that exists between two individuals or multiple individuals, whatever it might be. Um, and because of this, this chemical nature, remember like sex is a chemical thing. And I think it's important to recognize that there's this objectification of the other. The sexual instinct finds pleasure in this merging in general. And so with this chemistry, that there's this concern with um, hooking into some, to the other and the other hooking into me, um, leaving a mark on, on each other. Mm. Similar to the social instinct, I think we should talk about the fact that this sexual instinct is selective. So the same way the social instinct wants to connect with individuals and bring them into the tribe, say, yes, you're, you're one of my people, come and join this group that protects me, the strength mm -hmm. in numbers, mentality, whatever. The sexual instinct is selective in finding a mate. You know, It's selective right. in, in who it wants to attract, who it wants to fuse with, um, and who it doesn't. And because it's so vulnerable, it's probably more so selective. Exactly. I think there's this, there is this degree of intensity that you often hear described with the sexual instinct. 
I think that's a really abstract word, but it, but it is intimate in a way. And that should be acknowledged that because it is so extreme and it is so about the removal of boundaries, the sexual instinct is choosy. It, it makes clear yeah. who it wants to attract and who it wants to repulse and shove away. And so there's this, like again, like I said, it's chemical. So there's this awareness of turning others on or off in a way. And of course, that doesn't literally have to do with like actual sex necessarily. But there's this sense of like, is this person hooked into me? Am I hooked into them? Do they want me? Do they want to be close to me? Do mm. they want to share life with me? Do they want to be fused with me? And, and that can be obsessive really easily. Yeah. And I think it's important to realize like the sexual instinct wants to consume whole. It wants to swallow something without chewing and it wants, or it wants to be fully consumed. You know, it's like, I want you to either fully consume me or I want to consume you. Mm. And that's the point of the merging. It, it's like, I think that's why you often hear about the sexual instinct as like burning hot because it's like this, it's like welding something together. You know, it's like taking two pieces and, and fusing them together through force and through heat. And we've used merging before to talk about nines, but the biggest difference between the sexual instinct and then just the nine in general is the fact that it's not just merging with whoever's around and it's not just merging in general. It's a very specific merging, a very specific fusing with the person it's targeting for the sexual instinct. Right. Yeah. 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 Whereas the nine, like the nine might merge, but the nine is merging with all of reality, you know, whatever reality is outside that, that gives more force. Also, it feels like the nine is merging to create a calm environment and the sexual instinct is merging to create, like, intensity. Yeah, absolutely. It, it wants to ride that wave, you know. Mm -hmm. When the sexual instinct is dominant, that, that's where you're going to see a lot of these behaviors. This obsessive pattern, um, this concern with hooking into someone else or them being hooked into you, this, uh, this consuming whole mentality, um, this fixation. You'll see a lot of those things with people who are sexually mm -hmm. dominant. And, like, your laundry example, honestly, there's, there's a concern with, post-merging, keeping that consistent. Exactly. Like, how long can I keep them into me? You right, know, in right. a way, basically, like, how long can I keep us as close as physically possible mm -hmm. or metaphorically possible, whatever it might be. But there's this sense of, like, how long can we stay fused? Right. And, and it feels, you can feel affronted by the digression of fusing. Yeah. And, and it, it might get confusing when we talk about, like, object relations conversations as far as, like, the rejection triad, eights, twos, and fives, fearing rejection. But the sexual instinct, in a way, fears rejection as well. Mm -hmm. It's concerned with, how do I make sure this person wants me? How do I make sure this person is into me? Or mm -hmm. how do I make sure this person who is not attractive to me is not into me? Or how do I make sure this person who I don't want relationship, who I don't want to be fused with at all, is not that close to me? And not to say that other dominant instincts don't feel that as well. There's just an over-focus on it. And... I can talk on being sexually repressed and the fact that like I can still feel those feelings about wanting to connect with people on a deeper level. But But that's social. You know what I'm saying? That's a social yeah, I'm I'm using the social to fill that need instead of using the sexual instinct. And that's a big thing. Remember, like the the repressed or forgotten instinct. Everyone's you still have that instinct, you know? You right. still need those needs to be met. But it's you feel just, it via another instinct. Exactly. So, like, for me, I'm self-pressed last. I forget my need to take care of my body and to survive. So that the natural self-pressed needs, I get those met through sexual and social needs. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Like, those instincts are more natural to me. So there's a way of, like, shoving the instinct that you don't want to deal with into the other two categories, especially into the dominant one. Right, right. You know? It's almost like I think that... I don't consciously think this, of course, but like whoever I might be fusing with, whoever my target might be, I think that self-press doesn't really matter. It'll, those, those needs will be met mm. so long as I meet this need of fusing with this target. Right. And, you know? and me as the complete opposite of you, of being self-press first and sexual last, like I am not concerned about the fusing if I'm hungry at all. Like that actually feels frustrating to me because I see that as a barrier to what I actually want, which is sleep or food or to be taking care of my body. And, and so it's not necessarily that I'm actively avoiding it, which sometimes I can, um, the sexual instinct, but it's often that I'm just not thinking about it. It's just not a focus of mine. 
And I think that's important to realize. Like everyone has all these instincts. The question is, where's the the instinctual focus? Mm -hmm. You know, where is your brain saying, this is super duper important? And where is it saying, this doesn't matter, you know? So like everyone has a need to be merged and to be made vulnerable and to have that those sexual needs met. Mm-hmm. It's the question is just like, is that a focus? Is right. that does that run your day? Does that run the way you instinctually respond to the world? Or like with self-pres, everyone has a body that they need to take care of and carry through life. Mm-hmm. You know, but is it like is is there a focus and over concern with how safe you are or how well fed you are or how mm. how much money and resources you have, you know? That that's when that's dominant, when self-pres is dominant, there's a focus on that. And for social, like everyone has a need to connect. Everyone has a need to play by the social rules. Everyone has a need to be recognized and, and connected to a herd. Mm. The question is, how focused are you on that, you know? Yeah. And I think it's important to realize, too, I was talking with a friend the other day about th- who's sexual last. Um, just with his own, he, he was thinking about what he was like when he was younger and how he wanted to be attractive to other people. He wanted mm. to be hot. He literally said that. Um and so he, I was teaching him about the instincts a little bit, and he was saying, I feel like I might be sexual because the attraction strategies of the sexual instinct he could resonate with. But the more we talked about it, the more we realized he wanted to be hot not because of the sexual instinct. There weren't targets he wanted to fuse with and attract mm. and pull in. He wanted to be hot for the social instinct because he's social dominant. Right. See what I'm saying? Right. He wanted to be attractive to other people because he wanted them to admire him. And then mm. he could have connections, and people would... would um, love him for following the social order, you know? Right. And so again, it goes back to this idea that like the instinct that we're forgetting, we just shove those needs into the dominant instinct typically. Right. And I want to talk again, like revisit when social is first, there's this over-focus on, um, considering other people's motivations, other people's wants, other people's, um, feelings. That doesn't mean you always bend to those feelings. Because you might just be very aware of them and say, screw those feelings. You know, I do what I want, you know, <laughs> or you could be like, yeah, this person's feelings matter so much. I have to play by the rules, you know, and that that's why neurosis matters, you know, because an eight that's social dominant versus a nine that's social dominant can look so different. Mm. You know, a three that's social dominant versus a four that's social dominant. It's going to it's going to manifest differently. And yet it's important to remember that everyone has those social needs. It's just like how cued into those structures are you? How aware are you of the bonds and connections that exist and the motivations and expectations socially that exist? Are they an overfocus? Are you constantly thinking about what do these people want here? What is, what is their mm-hmm. expectation? What's their standard? How should I respond? How should I not respond? Do I want to engage? Do I not want to engage? Versus when you're social blind, just not really considering those things, thinking more about self-present sexual needs. Mm-hmm. Like who's my target? Who am I fusing with? And also, do I have the food I need? Do I have the, the shelter I need? Do I have a home? Do mm-hmm. I have resources? And of course, what's crazy about these instincts is that it's really meta to think about them because we would never sit down and say, wow, you know, I often think about, you know, where is food and where's the nearest grocery store and what would I do if my tire popped? But we just assume that that's how everyone does it. Like when I hear about you talking about um, this need to fuse, I'm, I'm like, how do you, why would you think about that? Like when you're not eating or why are you thinking about that when you're, um, you're using the sexual instinct to fill these other needs, which you could just do like I do, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's just really odd that we go about our lives. Like this is the way everyone lives. I think that's, what's really crazy when you start talking about instincts is because we can deeper understand how other people work and, and honestly the expectations other people have of us. And of the other people in their lives. Because we all think that everyone works like we do. That's our right. default, is always to think that the way I exist is the most natural and reasonable way to exist. You know, and like, even think about me and Malia. Like, I think she and I can be really similar, right? I mean, you would probably agree with that. Oh, like, yeah, we're very similar. We're similar in a lot of ways. And yet, we this this instincts conversation, we're so opposite. Yeah. And we really are. Like, think about our stacking. It's like, I'm, I'm sexual social and she's self-pressed social, you know? Mm-hmm. So our dominant is the other's repressed instinct. And because of that, there's this, like, idea that, like, wow... That's interesting. You know, like I can't imagine being hyper concerned about sleep, food, having the things you need, having the money you need the way yeah. you are. You know what I'm saying? Like doesn't mean that it's wrong of you to do it that way. I just like like I don't notice when I have to go to the bathroom, you know, until I have to go really bad. Mm, <laughs> I don't yeah. notice when I'm hungry until I'm really hungry. Right. Because my instincts just like not there. I'm not concerned all the time about like I'm not checking in with my body. Right. To see how it's feeling until it's suddenly my body's like, hey, I need this really, really, really bad. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh. 
Okay, sorry. I think it's important to realize, too, that um, the self-present instinct is the most basic and the most normal. You know, like, it's it's the most natural to survival because it's about making sure that your body literally makes it through the day and mm-hmm. lives. So I would say, by and large, the most common instinct to see that dominant is self-pres. And then I would say social is probably second most common um, because self-pres and social both establish boundaries. They both create structures for survival. But because the sexual instinct is about that fusing and that merging and that psychological nudity, it's about the destruction of boundaries. You know, the yeah. sexual instinct is focused on destroying yeah. boundaries. So it, it, it can be at odds. You know, I was reading about the way that the peacock feathers, you know, like a peacock's feathers might help him attract a mate, but it might actually slow him down when he's escaping, like Mm -hmm. some sort of predator, you know? So sometimes the sexual instinct can jeopardize the boundaries created by social and self-pres needs. And I think it's important to realize that for sure, the least common dominant instinct is sexual. It it, it is definitely- It's the least conducive to living. (laughs) Exactly, it's it's inconvenient, frankly. so I would say most common um, dominant instinct is self-pres and then social and then sexual is definitely most often repressed or forgotten. Yeah, yeah. You guys, so thanks for checking out this episode. Um, this one was really eye-opening to us and we were really excited about learning uh, more information on it and the biological side of it and how um, intricately it's woven into just our humanity. It's so animalistic. Yes. Yeah. So between now and next time, please check us out on Instagram at not my type Enneagram and email us at gmail.com at the, with the same handle. If you have any questions. Yeah. And if you are not following us on Spotify, please do that. Or subscribed or <laughs> or subscribe on Apple Podcasts if you're not there. And leave us a review because it's super, super helpful. Yeah, that's big. Um, we're also like on Facebook, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can engage with that if you want. <laughs> okay, we'll see you guys. Bye. <laughs> that is very funny, but I was thinking more like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's someone from BBC suddenly. Welcome back to BBC's Not My Type. <laughs> Welcome back to Not My Type Enneagram. The Enneagram podcast. It dismantles whatever you thought. <laughs> I love how you started recording just so you could do that. Just so you could get your. Oh, it's classic. Oh, someone help. <sighs> <laughs> <Not me. laughs> I don't know. <laughs>